I want to begin this morning by uh, telling you a humorous story of uh, my childhood. And I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with how um, obsessed Indian parents are with uh, grades and uh, schooling. And I know every parent is, wants their parents to, or kids to get good grades, but Indian parents just take it to a whole nother level, like it's just out there. And so I remember growing up, and I would uh, obviously as a kid wanted to always try and please my parents, so I would get, bring my 98 and say, Dad, Mom, see I got a 98 on my exam, and uh, they would like uh, brush that, pass that, and I was like, where did you lose the two points? Why didn't you just get the other two points? It was only two points to 100. Why didn't you get the 100? And I was like, well, okay, I guess uh, we'll uh, try harder next time. And so if, uh, but on the other hand, when I bought 100, uh, the question was not, good job, you got 100. It was, how many other kids got 100? Because then if everybody else got 100, then it wasn't hard enough. So, uh, so they, I, uh, I grew, up, uh, uh, grew up with this um, mentality that even a perfect score didn't meet their expectations, right? Their expectation line was way beyond even the perfect score. Uh, score. And so I, uh, I kind of uh, uh, got ingrained in me to constantly uh, try harder, which uh, worked out for me uh, in, in when it came to grades. But I noticed a few years ago that when I became a Christian, I subconsciously uh, translated or projected my never-pleased expectations that my parents had and projected it onto God. So as a Christian, I found myself constantly trying to uh, please God uh, as opposed to living in God's love for me. And so um, I remember this uh, season of my life a few years ago when I was, uh, I can't remember the exact details, but I remember going through a difficult uh, time when I was worried about something or I was frustrated about something and remember God speaking to me and saying, Stanley, you live like a spiritual orphan. And I think that hit me very hard because um, I, I believed uh, uh, in Christ. I put my faith in Christ as a, as a child, and so I figured I would know this by now. But I uh, found myself uh, living, uh, even though I believed uh, theologically that God loved me, when it came to practically and functionally, li- functionally living, I lived like an orphan. I lived like I did not have a loving Heavenly Father. And so um, I, it, it took me a long time, the uh, last few years, and I'm not anywhere close to where I should be, but I find myself wrestling with this idea of uh, living to please God as opposed to living in God's love for me. And so that's what I want to uh, talk to you guys uh, this morning. Can I share a little bit of my journey, but hopefully help uh, some of you guys, as you, as if you guys can relate to that. And so I, I've... Uh, one of the things that um, I wrestled with uh, as I undertook this journey of wrestling with this idea, I noticed that I equated God or loving God to pleasing God. I said, if I loved God, then I would please him. And so I constantly, uh, uh, trying, like I tried to please my parents, tried to please God. And uh, I kind of functioned like um, uh, that God was more, just more or less like my parents, and I constantly had to work to uh, get his approval and love. And so um, I, uh, f- and as I started digging and digging in my soul, I noticed that I had this expectation list, and I noticed it was very similar to the expectation list I had for other people. And so I, no- and I was like, I was like, oh, this is uh, odd. And I noticed that I had made an expectation list for myself, on behalf of God. I said, okay, God, I know what it looks like to be moral, good, righteous, etc. And here's that list. It's the list I'm going to live by, and I know this is the list you want for me. And so I judged uh, how God loved me the way I judged other people. And that's kind of the expectation that I lived with. And um, 
And uh, the other thing I noticed was that I focused a lot on how much I loved God versus how much God loved me. While loving God or uh, focusing your love for God, for God is not necessarily a bad thing, I used that as a scale. I used that to assess how I stood in the presence of God, how I uh, ranked in how God wanted me to live. And so it was more of a scale for me to determine how righteous I was. And um, it always changed. Like my parents' expectation line, it, never, uh, it was never enough. Uh, sometimes it, uh, I felt loved. Uh, I'm not sure why. Uh, it might have been because I woke up on the right side of the bed, or I, what, it's what I ate for dinner that, uh, the previous night, or it's it maybe because I prayed or read my scripture enough. And so those were the criteria that I used to dictate or uh, uh, inform my, uh, my perception of who God was to me. And so that, uh, that, those were some of the things that I realized as I uh, kind of undertook this journey to assess who, who God was to me or my perception of God. And so um, uh, I have a feeling most of you, how many of you relate to that? Most of you, yes, yeah. How, and I think uh, a lot of times uh, that uh, this is true for most Christians as we grow. This is part of our growing uh, perception is we have to tear down our perceptions of God and let Scripture and the Gospels uh, gospel inform our picture of who God is, inform our perception of who God is. And that's what I wanna, I'm hoping to do today uh, with you guys. So uh, where are you guys in that journey? Do you guys believe that God is fond of you? Or do you believe that God is a frustrated deity? Do you believe that uh, God loves you as you are as and not as you should be? Um, and instead of worshiping the God of the Bible, our life experiences have given us uh, a God that is a composite of uh, our moral experiences, our moral standards. Uh, and for example, if we tend to keep score in our relationships, we think God keeps score of us. And that's generally how we tend to function uh, apart from the biblical understanding of who God is and what his love for us is like. Uh, the French writer and philosopher uh, said it well, and I think this quote uh, stood out to me. Uh, he, said, uh, he said it perfectly when he said, In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man has been trying ever since to repay the favor. Right? We, we have been trying ever since our creation to recreate who God is to based on our likeness. And so often that's how we think God's love is. In our limited capacity, we use our human experiences of love as our model for how, how God loves us. And if you've had people who've loved you well, like I have, uh, you tend to have a fairly healthy understanding of what God's love to you means, even though it's not perfect, like in my case. But some of us don't have good um, examples of what it means to be loved well. And so we project our worst experiences uh, in those cases, onto God. And so you, you, the reasoning goes, if the authorities in my life did not love me well, how can God, the ultimate authority, love me? And that tends to be the reasoning, and it's oftentimes subconsciously. So that's some of the things that I want us to uncover today. And so one of the, why is this important? And as I, as I went through that journey, I noticed something in my life, that how I perceived God dictates how I relate and respond to him. How I perceive God dictates how I respond and relate to him. Uh, and before we move on, you can, you can find out what your perception of God is too. Right? Uh, when you go home tonight or this afternoon, I don't plan to keep you guys here tonight, till tonight, but when you guys go home this afternoon, uh, take a piece of paper and ask yourself, uh, does your God or your perception of God 
change based on, how you, based on your experiences or how you're feeling that day? How do you, do, you, do you trust God or do you tend to trust yourself? Do you tend to live like a spiritual orphan or do you, can you, do you find yourself being able to trust God in times of seasons of difficulty uh, and trials? And so uh, I want us to look at this, uh, this story uh, in a, from the Bible that I think helps uh, illustrate this point. And it's a story that we're most uh, all familiar with, uh, but it's the story of the prodigal son. By the way, I think in my understanding of the story, I think there's two prodigal sons. But the title of, it's often titled it probably in your Bibles as the prodigal son. And so a few things stood out to me as I looked at this story in, in light of this, uh, in light of this um, uh, light of the subject, and so I want us to look at the story again. I won't read all of the story because of lack of time, but I want to spend a few minutes uh, pointing out a few verses that I think uh, illustrate the point that I'm trying to get at, which is how we perceive God dictates how we relate to him and respond to him. So the prodigal son, for those that don't know, the, this is how the story goes, where there's a son. Luke writes in uh, Luke 15, verses 11, all the way uh, to the end of the chapter, verses 32. Um, in 11, uh, Luke start, begins by telling the story of this father who has two sons, an older son and a younger son. And so the story is the younger son goes to his father, asks for in his inheritance. And in the Jewish culture, most of you already probably know this, uh, when you ask your father or your uh, parents for the, your inheritance, you're essentially communicating that you would like them to be dead. It's like, I, I need my money, like, why are you still alive? Like, I, can I get my inheritance earlier? And so that's, that's kind of the, the uh, gist of what happens when you ask your father who is alive for your inheritance. But the father complies, uh, basically uh, divides the inheritance and gives his son uh, his inheritance. Uh, and so the younger son, as he receives his inheritance, looks out in the world and says, man, my father and his house are a hindrance to, what I, to, to what's out in the world. Like, the best that I have to experience is out there beyond my father's house and his household. So I'm going to take my money and go uh, celebrate and go enjoy uh, the best that's out there. And so uh, in, verse, in, verse, um, four, in verses of 13, it says that he basically took his money, uh, and the way Luke puts it, he says he uh, squandered his property in reckless living. That's usually how these stories uh, tend to end. Um, but um, it goes on to say, I want to pick up in verse 14, it says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to feed into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So here's a Jewish boy uh, feeding the pigs, which the pigs are an unclean uh, animal to him. Um, but he can't even eat the pigs. He, has to, uh, he can't even eat what the pig, pigs were eating. And that's essentially where he finds himself. And in verse 17, he comes to a realization. And the realization that he comes to is that his father's house was so, not so bad after all. He realized at that moment, uh, in verse 17, that the best that he had was worse than the least in his father's house. The best that he had in his current state was worse than the, best, than the least that was in his father's house. And so we see that in verse 17 where he says, But he came to himself. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and, and before you. And so the realization that he has messed up or that he has sinned or that he has um, 
destroyed his life comes when he realizes who his father really is, when his perception of his father has moved from being a hindrance to actually being a loving father, right? And so that essentially is usually the story of the prodigal son. But I want us to keep going uh, because that's, the younger son is not my focus uh, for, this, for this morning. Uh, it's the older son. And so he goes back, uh, and the father, uh, uh, he, conf- he apologizes to his father. His father welcomes him, puts a, a robe on him, gives him a ring, puts sandals, and says, let's celebrate, kill the fatted calf. And so the, the, uh, the party starts, uh, and we, we pick up in verse 25, where the older son now is back. He's, he's noticing that there is all this party and celebration. And so uh, in verse 25, or excuse me, in verse 26, he, uh, Luke writes, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your f- brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older son, uh, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And some of your translation says the, his, the father pleaded with him. And so um, we, we see this father, this conversation between the father and the son uh, going to take place. And that's where I want to spend some time this morning. Um, and to his father's pleading, the older son says in verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But the son of yours who came, who, was devour, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And so here we get a glimpse into how the older son perceived the father, don't we? We see that the older son's uh, uh, perception of the father is uh, that because he had served and because he was obedient to his father, that he had at least uh, he at least deserved a young goat. It might not be the fatted calf, but his obedience and his serving at least um, deserved a young goat. And so that is his perception uh, that uh, that he functioned with. So instead of finding his identity as his father's son, he found his identity as a son who was obedient and who served his father. Now let's look at how the father responds to the son. In verse 31, And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so here, verse 31 gives us this real status of the older brother and how it is different from the older son's perception of his identity. So the father says that everything that the father owns is the older son. But the older son cannot see that because in his mind, he's keeping score, right? Oftentimes as believers, we are saved by God's grace through the blood of Jesus. Uh, We function like older sons. I found myself functioning like the older sons. But did you catch the uh, disconnect between how the father perceived the son and how the son perceived the father? Even though the father pleads with the son, the son cannot accept it because he cannot fathom his father as loving So even if he owned everything, everything belonged to him and his father was present to him and he had access to the father, he could not experience it because he was busy earning and counting his points that he thought the father was keeping score of. Sounds familiar, right? Just like me, he was keeping score of the expectations that he thought his father was keeping score of. And he created this list of expectations on behalf of his father. So while we don't know how the older son responds, the parable ends, 
and we don't know how the all the son responds. It's a lesson that teaches us to ensure that we evaluate our perception of who God is to us. So that when correction comes, when the good times come, when the bad times come, we know how to respond. We know how to relate to God. Oftentimes when correction comes, we say, well, you know, I'm just going to ignore it. When sin is pointed out, we, we just ignore it because we can't believe that God is loving. When good times come, we, we think it's because we've earned it. When bad times come, we attribute it to God's punishment on us. But all, all those are false. Because the truth of the matter is that God loves us and his corrections, blessings, all come out of his love for us. But neither of these sons understood this. Right? The younger son saw that uh, the best was out there for him and living in his father's house under his father's rule was a hindrance to his best life. And the older son thought that his best life came if he, basic, uh, if, he ba- if he obeyed and served his father into his father's favor. And so I think that illustrates the point uh, that, uh, that was uh, haunting me as I went through this uh, uncovering for me. And I hope that's something that will help you uh, assess where you are and what your perception of God is. Is your perception of God uh, and the image of the Heavenly Father like the compassionate and loving Father? Or uh, who, invites a, uh, who invites both the repentant, uh, rebellious brother and the legalistic older son to come and join the celebration? Is that the kind of father or the perception that you have? Let's look at how the Scripture defines God's love for us. How, how Scripture teaches us about God's love for us. And so um, I want us to look at a few passages, and I want to begin with John uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1 and verse 14. I'm going to read from the NLT version, uh, but I think this ESV is what's going to be up on screen. But um, before we, uh, before we um, get, you can turn to there, um, to that passage. I remember as I was walking through that season of life, and it's something that still uh, kind of is pretty big deal to me. The Gospel of John is an excellent book if you're interested in learning more about how to perceive God's love for you. Uh, the Apostle John uh, does a very good job of understanding this. Um, this is not in my notes, but I thought I found this interesting. If you read through the book of John, you'll notice that John, when writing about himself, the way he refers to himself is often, I think it's about four or five times in the book, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's absurd when you think about it, right? Here's Peter, here's John, and here's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is John writing about himself. Um, and I always thought that was uh, arrogant and absurd, but I, I think the longer I have spent time meditating on it, I think it's, it's an accurate picture of how John saw his relationship with the Father, how John saw his relationship with Jesus. If you think about it, on the other hand, Peter, uh, when, uh, when, when Jesus said, I have to go die on the cross, uh, G- G- Peter said, I will never leave you. you know, how, how, I'll, I'll be with you till the end. That was Peter's uh, perception. He was focused on his love for Jesus. He could not imagine him leaving God or leaving Jesus to die. John, on the other hand, had no such big aspirations. John was like, my identity is in how God loves me. Right? And interestingly, as you read uh, the, the crucifixion story, uh, what happens? Peter denies him three times. And who's at the foot of the cross? John is. John is the only disciple uh, uh, of, his, of the original 12 apostles that finds himself 
uh, at, the, at the foot of the cross. That's what uh, happens when you focus on God's love for you. You find yourself being, uh, not, being, uh, not being focused on so much on how you perform, but on uh, living in the truth that God loves you. By the way, sidebar, that's just something that um, I've found interesting in the book of John, but um, that's free. That's not part of, uh, that's, that was uh, not part of today's prize. But in, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, we see uh, John writing, uh, and we've read this passages multiple times here, but it says uh, in the NLT version, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So John points to two specific things that I want to emphasize today. Uh, John points to, uh, one, God's love for his children and labels it as unfailing. What does it mean for God's love, God's love to be unfailing or sometimes it's referred to as eternal? It means that it never changes you might change, your seasons might change, you might get married, you might stay single, you might have kids, you might not have kids. God's love is not dependent on any of those. It does not change when we change. It does not change when seasons of life change. It is always present and always constant. The second thing that John points to is God, about God's love is that God is present with us. Here he specifically refers to Jesus' incarnate, incarnation as a baby. But um, when Jesus, after Jesus is crucified and he's, he, he's resurrected and ascends into heaven, uh, he sends the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so John is essentially referring to that second aspect of God's love, that he's ever present with you. That he is present with you as a loving father, whose love is unfailing, uh, and his, he's present to do life with you. Even as you look at the Great Commission, he says, I will be with you till the, what? End of the, end of the day, end of the age. Uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a symbolic uh, representation of God uh, through the Holy Spirit being present with you. So the two things that John was pointing to was God's unfailing love, eternal, never changing, and God's presence with us. Uh, secondly, uh, the, uh, what John, um, the thing that I want to uh, look at is uh, how God's love is different from our love for each other, right? And again, I, I'll go back to John. Uh, John writes in 1 John verses 4 and 8. I'm not sure if that's up there, but John 1, uh, 1 John 4, 8 says, Anyone who, loves, who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me read that again. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Here John indicates something very specific. And that uh, what he's trying to point is that God is the source of love. And so um, this, it's an important distinction I think uh, that helped me that I want to share with you guys. And that is this. When we as people love each other, uh, we love because we find something appealing and attractive in the other person. Right? For example, when I decided to date my wife Lindsay, I found her attractive as a person and I responded to that attraction. I hope most of that's, that's true for most of you here. Um, but that's, that's how we uh, relate to one another, right? You think about your friendships. Think about your spouses. Think about your relationship with chocolate cake, right? When we say we love chocolate cake, what are we, what are we really saying? We're really saying that we find chocolate cake satisfying, appealing, and attractive, right? However, when God says... Uh, he loves us, he means something completely different. When God says he loves us, he does not say that he finds something attractive and appealing in us. Right? Thank God. 
right? Thank God that he does, that's not how he responds. Brennan Manning says it beautifully, and I'll read this quote to you guys. He says, unlike ourselves, God does not respond to attraction or react to a nice gesture. God the Father loves men and women not for what he finds in them, but for what he finds in himself. It is not because men and women are good that he loves them. It is because God himself is so unspeakably and unimaginably good that the God and Father of Jesus loves all men and women, even sinners. He does not detect what is congenial, attractive, and appealing and then respond it with his favor. He does not respond at all. For the God of Jesus is source of love. He acts. He doesn't react. He initiates love. He loves without motives. And because his love is creative, God's love originates good rather than rewarding it. I think that's a fundamental difference about how God loves his creatures and the way we as creatures love each other. Even though God asks us to imitate him, we find that extremely hard. But God's love is not a reaction to how you perform on a day, on a given day. He's the source of love. His love originates good. It does not, uh, it does not reward it. And finally, I want us to look at how Paul communicates uh, in his writings about God's love. And in writing to the Ephesus, church at Ephesus, he puts it profoundly in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And I'll read this quickly because we're running out of time. And verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying even if you have the right understanding or the right perception of who God is and his love for you, his actual love surpasses way beyond any understanding that you might have of it. It's too deep for you, it's too high for you, it's too wide for you to even comprehend. And Paul is trying to help us portray or help us understand that God's love for us is unfailing, extends way beyond anything that we can even comprehend. So that's what Scripture says God is and what God's love is like, right? Very different from the list that I had for myself. And so that's where I think we have to address, uh, where we have to tear down our images of what God is and his perce- our perception of him uh, and, our, uh, and his love for us and allow Scripture to inform our love for uh, God's, inform our picture of what God's love is for us. Does that make sense? And so that's what I, wanna, um, I want us to leave you guys with. One last thing before we, we finish out today. Um, one of the, what happens when we correctly understand God's love for us? What happens when we learn to live in God's love for us? Well, one, uh, because our perceptions shape us and they form us, we start to behave like the God we perceive. Don't we? So if you believe uh, that God loves you and you live as such, you will naturally start loving your neighbor because you can't do anything else. The love compels you to love others. But if you believe that God is keeping score or out to get you when you mess up, then you will keep score of the people that are in your life. Just look at how people interact with their uh, neighbors or with their uh, spiritual uh, families and you can get a glimpse of what their God is like. And oftentimes it's very different from the biblical picture of who God is. And we see this in the story of Zacchaeus, and this is the last story uh, that I'll share with. Um, uh, Luke writes the story of Zacchaeus, or records the story of Zacchaeus in uh, Luke 19. 
Um, and uh, this is one of my favorite stories. I was asking Lindsay yesterday what she thought about when she heard the name Zacchaeus. And she said, um, oh, it reminds me of that song. Uh, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I was like, that's terrible. <laughs> terrible that the man was known for his uh, height uh, rather than his response to Jesus. Right? And so I'm hoping to repaint that picture for you today. Uh, and I hope I'm, I'm successful because uh, Zacchaeus was more than just a short man. Um, Kevin can relate. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, so in, in, in Luke 19, uh, Luke rec- records uh, the story here and says, He entered Jericho, referring to Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. But when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. They referred to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees could not stand that Jesus was having dinner with a sinner. The Pharisees had a list, a list of expectations that they kept score of. And Zacchaeus did not fit that list. So they were grumbling. They said he was, he is in words, uh, he says, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But let's look at Zacchaeus' response to God's love for him. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus goes on to proclaim salvation to his household. This is pretty interesting because if you know anything about tax collectors in the Bible, they're not in the business of giving. They're not in the business of giving anything, let alone fourfold. They're in the business of taking and the business of extracting from people, right? And if you read here, it tells us, that, uh, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. He took from the people who took. So he was the big dog, right? He collected, extracted as much as he could from the other tax collectors. And so when, uh, when Zacchaeus experiences God's love, and responding to it, he decides to give half of his wealth away that he spent all his life accumulating. And then he says, if I've defrauded anybody, I want to give, you, I want to give them fourfold. He, makes, he, reckon, he not only repents for his sins and for his greed, his idols and his perception of God is torn down, but he responds and makes restitution based on after he's experienced God's love. That's what the correct understanding of God's love does for us. It helps us address sin in our lives in the right way. It does not, we, because we uh, perceive that God is loving and that out of his love he corrects us, we move in, we lean in, we ask him to change our lives. We uh, make restitution. We go and reconcile to our brother who we have uh, problems with. That is what a correct understanding of uh, love does. We don't keep score. As, as, uh, that's what happens when you get a glimpse of God's love for his children and when you learn to live in God's love for you. As a believer, you respond by rejecting and addressing the sin in your life. You make an effort to love your neighbor and tell him how much God loves him too and longs to be in relationship with them. So as the band comes up, I want to finish up uh, with, with one more uh, word that, uh, that I found interesting as I was studying this passage. Um, can I ask you as 2017 begins? Uh, and 2017 is off to a fast start. Can I plead with you to keep your eyes on Jesus? 
Can I ask you to pray that God makes his love for you abundantly clear? Uh, I want to pray a blessing over you um, um, that we find in Numbers uh, 6, 22 through 27. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But in, in, in Numbers 6, uh, 22, uh, all the way to the end of that chapter, uh, God is instructing Moses to tell Aaron and his sons to bless the people. And so I want to pray this blessing over you and your families uh, this morning because this is who God is uh, and this is what his love looks like for his children. Verse 22, um, the writer of Numbers says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this blessing over this congregation and their families. I pray that you help us keep our eyes on you, surrender our pride and our expectations and our moral standards to you this new year, and help us to learn to live in the love you have for us. Help us to revel in it. Help us to uh, see our entire lives, our money, time, resources, energy, our families, our enemies, our neighbors, Help us to see all of that in light of who you are and the light of your love for us. That our identity does not come because we do well and we obey well, but it comes because you yourself are the source of love and you love us and respect us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. And God, God's people said.